last week. Pastor Bill was very apologetic for going long. I was rejoicing because I knew that if I went long this week, you would be thinking about him, and so it wouldn't, wouldn't be so bad. So, so thank you, Bill, whenever he watches this recording. I, I've tried everything I possibly can to uh, block out the middle school years of my life in my head. It was probably some the, the three most traumatic years of my life, and, um, and, and I, I, I do not envy any of you teenagers in here or about to be teenagers that are in the 6th, 7th, or 8th grade. I, I pity you, and maybe that's why God called me to minister to you specifically. I don't know. Uh, but I, I just couldn't stand it. One thing that I, could, I have not been able to, to get out of my head about middle school, though, was the first day that I walked in science class, and the teacher said, today we're dissecting frogs. And I looked, and I was thinking, this is a great day. This is the best day of middle school, and I'm, I'm not sure of the sanity of a teacher that will give a, a middle school boy a scalpel and a dead animal. Um, but we did it anyway. And what I learned was this, is that I had spent most of my life Obviously, I was a little boy, so um, playing with frogs. Frogs fascinated me. I, I enjoyed them. I had older sisters. There was all sorts of things that you can do with a frog with older sisters. And so I enjoyed frogs, but I didn't know a lot about frogs is what I learned. Because when we started dissecting a frog, there's a lot to a frog. There, there's more to what meets the eye. You, you start digging in there, and what I found is that when you start looking at small pieces of frogs and, and play with them, it's easy to lose sight of the big picture even. Because in the next class, when I took the frog's eyeball, no one knew what it was. And I thought that was funny. The same is true of the gospel. The same is true of the gospel. The gospel is, is rich and, and it's unending in depth when we dissect it. There, there are so many glorious truths about the gospel that we can never mind them all. We can never, we can never overstudy the gospel. But what we can do, and sometimes what I fear, is that, that we can get so focused in on, on minute sections of the gospel that we can miss the big picture. Just like when, when I took the, the eyeball from the frog in the next class, no one knew what that was. Why? Because they didn't see the big picture. They just saw this thing in my hand that I was playing with on the table in my desk. They had no idea what that was. And so sometimes we can, we can talk about all these different aspects of the gospel without providing the reference point, and we can miss what it is. We, we live in the Bible Belt. We hear the word gospel all the time, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. But yet we live in the midst of a land and a region, a county, a city, that has a lot of misunderstandings about what the gospel is. Our, some of our teenagers went uh, to a store here in town, and they took a video camera, and they just asked a simple question. They went up and said, hey, can I interview you? And the individual, if they said yes, they would say, okay, well, can you tell me what is the gospel? And people, people would reply in, in a multitude of ways. Some of, some of them nailed it, but most of them did not. Most of the people that replied did not know what the gospel was. There was all sorts of answers. There was answers, uh, well, going to church, that's the gospel. Being a good person, that's the gospel. There's a lot of misunderstanding of what the gospel is. So before we, before we dissect the gospel today, I want us to, to just take a step back and look at the big picture, because I think we need to do that. So what is the gospel? If somebody comes to you, what is it? If somebody says, listen, I want to give you, can you just tell me in 60 seconds or less, what's the gospel? How will you answer them? 
Do, do you know, do you understand the gospel that, that the gospel is the truth that God created us from nothing? He created us to have a relationship with him, to be with him. But we sinned, and that sin brought separation. There was punishment for that sin. And so we were separated from our holy God. The relationship that God created us to have with him was broken. And so then man tries. We try everything we can to reconcile that relationship. But there's nothing that we can do to pay for our own sins. Our sins can't be removed by good deeds. They can't be removed by going to church. They can't be removed by sacrifices. We were helpless. But God knew this, and he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, paying the price for sin, died and rose again. He came. He, he lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death, and he rose from the grave to promise this, that everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That if we confess our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. That's good news. That's good news. But it doesn't end there, does it? It doesn't end there. We know that not only are we saved, but we're given a gift of eternal life. Eternal life, life that starts now and lasts forever. Praise God. Praise God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the big picture. This is the frog, so to speak, today. And we can't lose sight of that. We can't lose sight of that. We're going to dissect it out of Galatians today. We're going to look at a truth in Galatians 3, if you want to go ahead and flip there. As, as you do that, I want to read to you the words of Martin Luther. And he, he wrote a commentary on Galatians. Galatians by Martin Luther, he described it as, as, as his book. And he wasn't trying to take ownership that he had penned it, but he was describing it as such because it was such an influential book in his life. And so he wrote a commentary on it multiple times. When he sat down to do it again, listen to what he said. He said, I have taken in hand in the name of the Lord yet once again to expound this epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians. Not because I desire to teach new things or such as ye have not known before, since that by the grace of Christ Paul is now thoroughly known unto you. But for that we have to fear, lest Satan take from us this doctrine of faith and bring into the church again the doctrine of works and men's traditions. Wherefore it is very necessary that this doctrine be kept in continual practice and public exercise both of hearing and reading. Now listen to this. He says, and although it, it be never so well known, yet the devil who rages continually, seeking to devour us, is not dead. Likewise, our flesh and old man is yet alive. Besides this, all kinds of temptations do vex and oppress us on every side, so that this doctrine can never be taught, urged, and repeated enough. If this doctrine be lost, then is also the doctrine of truth and life and salvation also lost and gone. If this doctrine flourish, then all good things flourish. Religion, the true service of God, the glory of God, the right knowledge of all things which are necessary for a Christian man to know. What doctrine is he talking about? 
He's talking about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because that's Paul's concern in the book of Galatians. Paul writes to them to, to remind them that you're not justified by works. We just sang of that. When we sang Rock of Ages. There, there's, no, there's no righteousness that these hands can bring to the rock I cling. Rock of Ages. And Paul says, listen, you are not justified by works. Don't turn aside to a false gospel. Read uh, 1, verse 6 and 7. He says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen, why do we talk about the gospel so much here? Why do we constantly refer to it? Why do we come back week in and week out? Why do we do studies on it? Why is the gospel so important? Why is it so important to come back that you're justified by faith? Is it because you've never heard that? No. It's because we understand the same thing that Martin Luther understood. That we are prone to living and justifying ourselves by works. Even as Christians, we still want to step back. We still have that temptation to justify ourselves by works. We still want to depend on them. Whether it's, whether it's works of vengeance instead of allowing God to do that. Whether it's works to, to show how good of a Christian we are. We, we want to be nice. We want to tithe, go to church and all these things. We, we're tempted to think that those things are going to make us a better Christian. That they're going to bring more pleasure from God in us. Are those things wrong? No. No. They're, they're fruits of our salvation. But they're not the basis of our salvation. And that's what we so often are pulled back to. The Galatian Christians are struggling with this. They're, they're struggling with a distortion of the gospel. It's not a whole nother gospel. It's just a distortion. It's become fuzzy. The doctrine that they clung to in Galatians chapter 3. Paul begins making a point in the first nine verses. He makes two points in those verses. The first one is this, is that when you came to Christ, when you were saved, how were you saved? You were saved by the Spirit, by the work of the Spirit, through faith. Your works didn't save you. They did not save you. It was the Spirit of God working in you that saved you. You did not earn your salvation, so now do you depend on works? No, we depend on Christ. The second point, he does the same thing as he does in Romans 4. He brings back the classic example of the pillar of the faith. Who? Abraham. He says, listen, Abraham, he was justified by faith. Abraham, the, the father of our faith. We read in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham did what? He believed, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It wasn't because of what he did. It was his faith. Now listen, the temptation that we struggle with is to follow after a distorted gospel. It's to follow after a gospel that would say, listen, yeah, okay, I'm saved by faith. I believe that. Intellectually, I would say that. And I think most of you in here would say that same thing. If we walked up to you one by one and said, how are you saved, by works or faith? You would say, by faith. Some of you wouldn't. Some of you are counting on works. But most of you would say faith. 
But we're tempted to follow after a distorted gospel beyond that and start depending then on our works. And so Paul is addressing this in Galatians 3. Turn with me to our text today. Galatians 3 will be in verses 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. For as many as, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now look at these first two verses. Paul, Paul is, is driving home the point here that we are justified by faith. We talked about his first two points in verses 1 through 9, that you come to Christ by the Spirit and that Abraham was justified by faith. And now he says, listen, here, here is the, the nail. Here's the nail in the coffin that works do not justify you in the sight of God. Only faith justifies you in the sight of God. You're not justified by works of the law. He says in verse 10, as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. This is a summary statement. This is a summary statement for the next two verses. He's quoting Deuteronomy 27, verse 26 there. We know elsewhere in the New Testament, Romans 3, verse 10, there's no one, no one who seeks God. No one is good. 3.23, very familiar verses. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. James 2.10, what does it say? It says, whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at one point, at one point, he has become guilty of all. We are not justified by works. Look at verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. No one. No one is justified by them. He says in 10, everyone is cursed who does not abide by all things. No one is justified by the law. You see? Are you hearing what he's saying? He says, listen, if, if you're going to be justified by works, you've got to keep them all. All of them. Same thing James says. But you don't. You know that. I know that. We don't keep all of them, do we? There's no way. There's no way. But if there's just one, just one that we miss, we're guilty of what? We're guilty of them all. This is a heavy burden. And not only that, verse 11, verse 10, I'm sorry. He says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Cursed. Cursed. Verse 12, the law is not of faith. What is the core of the law? The core of the law is what? It's doing. It's doing. What's the core, the basis of faith? 
is trusting. It's trusting. You see, doing depends on who? It depends on us. It depends on me. The law depends on me that, that, that I would do this. But the problem is I'm sinful and I don't. The problem is I, I fail. The problem is that I, I transgress against God. I disobey Him. I follow after the leading of my sinful nature. But the law, the core of it is doing. And I'm unable to do it. The core of faith is trusting, we said. Trusting is in who? It's in Christ. It's trusting in someone outside of yourself. And who is Christ? He is the holy Son of God. The righteous, majestic King of kings and Lord of lords. So what are we depending on? Are we depending on, on that which we try to do unsuccessfully? Or are we depending on the one whom we can trust who did so perfectly? Are we depending on Christ who lived a perfect life? Because we're not saved by the law. The law brings curse. So I think we, I think we, we, we stop there. And this is why this, this section is important for us to study. Because so many times we say we're not saved by works. And we just leave it there. But God goes beyond that. He says not only are you not saved by works, but you inherit a curse. A curse from God. Luther, again, he compares the curse to a flood that swallows up everyone who's not covered by the grace of God. Everyone. It's a flood that just overwhelms. This idea of, of cursing is not popular. It's not one we like to talk about. It's not one we hear a lot about. Hey, did you know you, God is cursing you? You're cursed. Hey, you're cursed. We don't go around doing that, right? We don't go around telling that. I told the youth there, you know, there's bumper stickers you don't see on the back of cars. All right? We talked about last week that God loves you. We don't see the one that says God is going to enact wrath against you. We don't see the one that says God curses you. It's not joyful good news, is it? We need, we need some help, I think, in understanding this. Let's, let's think for a moment about the Old Testament background. Because the, the, the readers, the hearers of this would certainly have had a, a great understanding of the background of the Old Testament. You remember that God established a covenant relationship with his people, right? You remember this. That the giving of the law, God establishes a covenant with his people. And every covenant has stipulations. It's the same with this one. Deuteronomy, if you just do a survey or read through Deuteronomy sometime you'll see a multitude of stipulations. And, and here's what we find out in Deuteronomy. If we uphold God's law, we are blessed. We're blessed. All throughout Deuteronomy, if you uphold God's law, you're blessed. This refers to what? The supreme favor of God. It refers to, to the close proximity of God. It refers to being in His presence, being near to Him, His face shining upon you, to be blessed by God. Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. We love that. We love the blessings of God, don't we? And rightfully so. I love them. I, what do I pray for my children? God, bless them. Bless them. I don't pray for them to be cursed. I pray for them to be blessed. And you do the same. We love the blessing of God. But we also see throughout Deuteronomy that if we break God's law, if we do not uphold it, that it brings curses. 
He says, cursed are you if you don't do this, if you don't uphold my law. Cursed are you. What does that mean? It means that he turns his back from you. It means that you're forsaken. It means that you're removed from his presence. We do not desire that. We do not want that. Why would we ever want to be removed from the presence of God? We're designed. What was the, what, what do we start with the gospel? We're created for what? We're created to be in a relationship with God. God did not create us to be distant. God created us to be with Him. With Him. But yet, when we do not uphold the law, we're cursed and we're forsaken. This brings up a point, a question. A lot of people you've heard or you've said, I've said it, that God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. And so this brings up a question, is that true? Is it true? If, if, if God curses those who break the law, can it really be said that he loves us? Can that, is that a true statement? Can we really make that argument? And here's, here's the deal. Is that in order to understand this, we've got to come back to the character of God. That's the only way to understand this question. Is it true? Because we understand that God is perfect in love. He's perfect in holiness. He's perfect in righteousness and justice. These are characteristics of who God is. It's his attributes. It's the core of who God is. He's loving. He's merciful. He's holy. He's just. That is who God is. So if we know that, then here's the answer. The answer is yes. God hates sin. How can he do anything else? He's holy and just. It defies the very core of who he is. So God hates sin. And yes, God loves the sinner. He's merciful. He's gracious. But here's the problem. Here's the dilemma. Is that you can't separate the sin from the sinner. That's problematic. You can't just say, oh, well, because he, he loves you, he hates your actions, we're just going to separate the two. No. We are sinners. We are sinful. In Romans 5.10, we're described as enemies of God. Listen, if you, could separate, if you could separate the sin from the sinner, you realize the cross would be unnecessary. There's no reason for Christ to have gone to the cross. It would have been absolutely foolish. But you can't separate it. We don't want to think about being an enemy of God. We don't like that. The fact is our nature is sinful, and God's holy, righteous, just response to who we are as sinners and what we do as sinners is not necessarily a good response that we like to think about. It's the holy, right response that we are punished for our sin. So the question lies is how, how does God's people deal with it what do we do with this what this is a problem right so what happens what did ricky read to us this is a, a very specific day in leviticus 16 that ricky read it was the day of atonement so god establishes the day of atonement he he gives them two instructions he says you're to bring two goats one for a sin offering one as a scapegoat the goat or the the lamb for a sin offering is to be unblemished and it was killed and sacrifice for the sins of the people. You're well-versed, most of you in here. Not everyone, but most of you in here are well-versed. And you know where that leads, that Jesus is described as what? The Lamb of God. John looks at him in John 1.29. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
In 1 Peter 2.19, we're found out that we're redeemed with precious blood from what? An unblemished Lamb of God. That perfect sacrifice, the one that, that was to atone and to pay for the sins of the people, Christ fulfilled that. He died in the place of the people. His blood atoned for our sin. We understand that. But what about the second one on the Day of Atonement? What of what the second one? It's the scapegoat. The scapegoat. Turn with me to Leviticus 16. You, you hear the word scapegoat. That, that's something you're, you're familiar with, right? A, a scapegoat is, while you're turning there, a scapegoat is someone who, although is innocent, is blamed for the sin or the crimes of others. We're, we're familiar with this. This is where we get this verse. This is where we get it from. Listen, let's, let's read verse 7 through 10 again. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 7 through 10. It's the third book of the Bible if you need help getting there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 7. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot for the Lord fell, make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. When he finishes atoning for the holy place, verse 20, I'm sorry, verse 20, when he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting, the altar, he shall offer the live goat. This is the scapegoat he's talking about in verse 20. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. Listen, literally the Hebrew word there for scapegoat means goat of removal. When Aaron laid his hands on the head of the goat, it was to symbolically place the sins of the people on that goat. And the goat was then led away into the wilderness. It was taken away from the presence of God, away from the people. It was forsaken, it was cursed, it was removed from God's presence. It took the sins of the people. One commentator says that, that in so doing, their sins were exterminated. They were done away with. They were removed. And so you have two goats. And important here is a scapegoat. Now listen, the problem is this. The problem with the Day of Atonement and the sacrifice of the two goats is what? Is that they were inadequate. They were inadequate. This happened time and time again. It was ongoing because these sacrifices were not sufficient to cover the sins of the people for all time. So year in and year out, they came back for the Day of Atonement. But praise God, praise God that He is just as full of mercy and love. He's just as full of grace as He is righteous and holy and just. That He would provide a way. That knowing that this sacrifice is inadequate, that He would provide one that is adequate in Christ. He would provide Christ as an adequate sacrifice for us. You see, the only way that God can satisfy the totality of his character is what? Is by sending Christ. Because in Christ's work on the cross, we see what? That the holiness, the wrath of God is appeased fully. 
Punishment is poured out upon sin. Sin is punished. Sin is dealt with. But we also see the utmost demonstration of God's love and grace and mercy. We see both of those in the cross. Both of them. And so God's character is intact. The integrity of his character is there in the sending, the coming of Christ. Now, let's read again Galatians verses 13 and 14. Understanding the background of blessing and curse to the covenant, understanding the context of the people that year in and year out, the Day of Atonement, seeing two goats sacrificed over and over and over for their sins. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Do you see what's happened here? Christ became a curse for us. This is incredible. How did he do that? How, how does he do it? Christ became a curse for us because he was hung on a tree. He was crucified. We call this what? The atonement. The atonement. They may have celebrated a day of atonement every year, but when this happened, it was the atonement. It was the work that Christ did to reconcile God and man's relationship, to bring us back into relationship with the Father. Do you see the amount of, of divine foreshadowing that, shadowing that happened in Leviticus 16? Do you see that? that? That God was preparing his people. He was preparing us to have a better understanding of what Christ did on the cross. Every year when those two goats were brought, one was sacrificed, one was sent away. We have a better understanding that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, but he's also our scapegoat. Think about it. Not only was Jesus the Lamb, but he was forsaken. He was delivered up to the Gentiles. The Gentiles, not the people of God, not the, not the Jews. He was delivered to the Gentiles, the Romans. And then what was he done? He was sent out of the city to Golgotha, out of the city, away from the presence of God in the temple. He gave his life. He died in your place, in my place. But in so doing, the sins of the world were placed upon him as well. And he removed them. He removed them. Both of the sacrifices from Leviticus 16 are fulfilled in Christ. Both of them. And they're, they're no longer inadequate. When Christ does it, it's done. It's adequate. It covers all sins for all times. That all who trust in him will be saved. Not by works. Not by works. Not by obeying the law, but by trusting in Christ. Listen, the, the curse, the curse that is mine, the curse that I deserve, the curse that you deserve, Christ took it away. He became a curse for us. Galatians says, a curse for us. God does not ignore your sin. I think some people think that God just ignores it. He doesn't. Sin has a price that must be paid, and it's either going to be paid by you or by Christ. 
Sin has a necessary price. God does not overlook it. But the glory of God is this, that he does not overlook it, but he pays the price in the blood of Christ. He pays the price. He knows that if you've trusted in him, your debt has been paid. Your debt's been paid. Christ became a curse for you by hanging on a tree. By hanging on a tree. This is amazing. This is amazing. We saw the big picture. We saw the gospel, the whole thing, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. We saw that. And when we start to dissect it, what does it teach us? That if you are in Christ, you're going to inherit the richest blessing you can fathom. You inherit what? You inherit a restored relationship, daily living in the presence of God, the indwelling spirit. The favor of God, the blessing of God is yours. Not because of what you've done. You're not justified by works. It's not based on what I've done. It's based on the work of Christ on the cross. But we also learn that if you're not standing in faith in Christ, then you're under a curse. God looks upon you and says, cursed are you. You've broken the law. The favor of God is removed. The presence of God you're cast out of. Our standing as blessed or cursed depends wholly on faith in Christ. Holy. Who you are and what you've done doesn't make any difference at all. Who Christ is and what he's done makes all the difference. Is your faith in Christ? Is your faith in Christ? Galatians 3.14, why did he become a curse? Listen, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's you and that's me. Why did he become a curse? That we might inherit the blessing of Christ. That we might inherit the rich blessing of God. Wow. Man, that's, that's amazing that we would be declared righteous by faith. That no matter what Satan does, that we know that we're not justified by works. That we can't lose our salvation because of works, because we are never justified by works. So that when Satan tempts me to despair, listen, before the throne, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This is a glorious truth that Christ became a curse for us that we might inherit the blessing of God. So the question is simple today. What are you relying on? Are you relying on your works to justify you in the sight of God? Or are you relying on faith in Jesus Christ to justify you in the sight of God? Believer, are you living by faith? Or are you falling into a distorted gospel? Are you falling prey to a distortion of the gospel? That you would try to depend on your works to show how good of a Christian you are. Do you know the grace of the gospel? Think on it often. Guard your hearts with it. You are justified by faith in Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. 
that you might inherit the blessing of God. It's for that reason that we glory in our Redeemer. We glory in Him. We rejoice in Him. Unbeliever, non-Christian today. Are you seriously shouldering the weight and the burden of the curse of knowing that you cannot live up to the law that you so hard try to live by? You cannot do it. If you break one law, you're guilty of it all. And you are not justified by works. It's in faith alone. So we would call you to faith this morning, faith in Christ, that you would inherit the blessing of God as a child of God. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we praise you that God, you did what we were unable to do. That God, you saved us by your grace. As a demonstration of your love and mercy, you saved us from the curse, from your wrath. Thank you, God. Father, as believers, we ask that you would use this glorious truth to strengthen our faith, to bring our hearts to a point of overflowing and rejoicing and thanksgiving and worship for you. And God, for those here this morning, God, who do not know you, God, I pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, the work you did on the cross, that as with the rest of us, they might glory in their Redeemer. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.